The rest of us are going to be in Romans chapter 9 this morning, so if you have a Bible, great. turn to Romans 9 with me if you would. And there's going to be, a, by way of introduction, this will be a first ever in my history of being here. So in, the, in 11 years, we've never started a sermon with 17th century poetry. This will probably be a first and a last, but I want to begin by uh, reading this poem that appeared in 1779, March 11th in what was called the Continental Journal. It's called On Predestination, and it was a biblical, or a jab at the biblical doctrine of predestination. So think like 17th century, you're going to have to think about this, but I think it'll make you smile and cringe. If all things succeed as already agreed, and immutable impulses rule us, To preach and to pray is but time thrown away. And our teachers do nothing but fool us. If we're driven by fate, either this way or that, as the carman whips up his horses, then no man can stray. All go the right way, as the stars that are fixed in their courses. But if by free will... We can go or stand still, as best suits the present occasion. Then fill up the glass and confirm him an ass that depends upon predestination. Two weeks later, rebuttal appeared in the same paper. If an all-perfect mind rules over mankind with infinite wisdom and power, Sure, he made decree, and yet we will be free, the deeds and events of each hour. If Scripture affirms in the plainest of terms the doctrine of predestination, we ought to believe it and humbly receive it as a truth of divine revelation. If all things advance with the force of mere chance or by human free will are directed, to preach and to pray will be time thrown away. Our teachers may well be rejected. But if men are depraved and to vice so enslaved that the heart chooses nothing but evil, then who goes on still by his own corrupt will is driving post-haste to the devil. Then let human pride and vain cavil subside. It is plain to a full demonstration that he's a wild ass who over his glass dares ridicule predestination. I liked it. I had to read it eight times before I understood it, but I liked it. So that's once. I'll read it seven more and you'll never. (laughs) Well, that's our icebreaker this morning because we are talking about issues related to predestination, something that uh, for... Years and years and years and years, people have disliked very strongly and others have stood up and said, wait a minute, this is biblical, you should embrace it and actually it's a very good thing. And so uh, the debate goes back and forth and back and forth. Well, as a church right now, we're in Romans 9 or we've just finished Romans 9 in our study of Romans and Romans 9 has a lot to do with issues related to predestination and election, and the absolute sovereignty of God in control of all things. 
And so what we're going to do this morning and next week as well is talk about some of the questions that come up when we study books or chapters like Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at these questions, and some of you have submitted questions. You've sent them to Romans 9 at omahabiblechurch.org, and we've uh, asked you to do that over the last several weeks in the bulletin and uh, um, different means like that. And so some of you have submitted questions. I've added some questions to the mix because of questions you've asked me. Uh, And these questions are appropriate, I think, number one, because this way I don't have to try to deal with all the questions as we're studying through it, and we would never get anything done. Um, too many rabbit trails. It's also helpful because Romans 9 has some things that are hard to understand. And it's also helpful because Romans 9 has some things that are hard to swallow. Especially hard to swallow if you're not used to it. If you're not biblically acclimated. and You don't have an appetite for these things. And so, while this won't be a regular sermon, whatever that means, um, I think it'll be helpful. Helpful um, for us as a church. Helpful for... Uh, me as a pastor, to try to get us to make sure we're thinking through things biblically and we have our questions answered. And so uh, some of these questions today, no doubt, will be questions you may have had, and we'll look at these next week as well. I have a list of 16 questions before me. Uh, I thought I was going to get the first seven done, first hour, and we got five done, so we have to get five done. Okay, so when I start talking really fast, that's why. Uh, It would be far too confusing for me to do two different things in two different services, um, because I went to public school. So, um, <laughs> on that note, we better pray one more time. <laughs> Lord, thank you for the great time we have together as a church family and in good times and in bad times. But Lord, thank you for times like this when we, we've been immersed in your word and we've been studying it together and now there are so many good questions that come as a result, and it's great that we can actually look to your word for answers. Lord, this is a humbling chapter for us, and Lord, we want to be therefore humbled, and we want to see you as the great God that you are. So help us to be thoughtful, help us to be quick to listen to your word, and even as James says, slow to speak, slow to object. And may this be a great time where Christ is exalted even as we deal with these questions and answers. In Jesus' name, amen. First question is one that I have submitted to make sure that everyone who's here today is uh, sort of brought up to speed because you may have not been with us. And it really does help sort of set the, the tone for the rest of the questions. And the first question is, what is at stake What are the issues at stake in Romans chapter 9? And really there are two issues at stake in Romans chapter 9. First of all, the the, the issue of the trustworthiness of God, the trustworthiness of God. And the second issue at stake in Romans 9 is the freedom of God, or as I like to say, the godness of God. And let me explain what I mean, and then we'll look at a couple of passages. In Romans 9, the issue at stake first and foremost is the character of God or the trustworthiness of God. And here's why I would say that. In Romans 8, we come out of the the most amazing, most encouraging, assuring, 
praise-inducing chapter that I know of in all of the Bible. It's a favorite among many, many, if not most, Christians about how if we believe in Christ and we have His righteousness credited to us, God accepts us and we can be absolutely sure that God accepts us. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And it's just phenomenal. But then there's a question that is anticipated. It's anticipated that thoughtful Christians who are thinking biblically and perhaps pondering these things will eventually ask a question along these lines. How can I really be sure that the promises of Romans 8 are true? In light of the fact, this is the thinking, I'm not saying this is true. In light of the fact that God made promises to the nation of Israel to save all of them, every single one of them. And he obviously hasn't because most of them have rejected Jesus as Messiah. Well, that's the kind of question that comes up. And it gets answered in Romans 9. See, that's a character of God issue. That's a faithfulness of God issue. God makes promises and He doesn't keep them. He made promises to the Jews and He didn't keep them. So how can we expect Him to keep His promises to us? But the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 makes sure that we're not questioning the trustworthiness of God and he makes it clear that God never said he was going to save every single Jew. He never said that. God was never trying, as I've been saying lately, never trying to be a universalist. Let's go ahead and see this in the text. Romans 9, 6, after introductory issues in Romans 9, 1 to 5, 9, 6 is really the first and foremost issue of what's at stake. He says in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, which is to say, it's not as though God has failed. He's not a promise breaker. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And we can stop there for the sake of time. And he unpacks that. The character of God is at issue in Romans chapter 9. And he's making it clear to us that God never promised to save everyone. As a matter of fact, God is a choosing God. And so he goes through Old Testament history, highlighting different characters, how God chose this one and he didn't choose this one. And so when we go back to Romans 8 and say, can we really trust God if we're believers in Christ? The answer is yes, absolutely. In the Old Testament, God, even though that's a a false way of looking at things, God in the Old Testament wasn't saying anything different. But that brings up another issue. What's at stake in Romans 9 is not only the trustworthiness of God, that's review, but it also brings up an issue about the freedom of God. Because in a sense, we're going to get our our feathers ruffled. Well, God chooses? God isn't a universalist? What right does he have to do that? Or, that's not fair. He's anticipating. So you, you take the lid off the can of worms, and there are worms everywhere. So what's at stake in Romans 9 is not only the trustworthiness of God, but as I like to say, the godness of God, the freedom of God to act like God and do whatever he wants to do because he's God. It's a major issue in Romans. Look at, let's read Romans 9, 14 to 24. And I'll put emphasis that I think is due emphasis. Romans 9, 14 says, What shall we say then? He knows the objection's coming in light of what he just said in the verses before. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
And he says, by no means. And I'm going to put emphasis on God here because that's what it's meant to be done. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 7 says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I, God, have raised you up, that I, God, might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, more objections, Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Verse 20 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? This is defending the freedom of God. What's at stake in Romans? The godness of God, the freedom of God, the right of God. That's what's used in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? Well, it's a ridiculous question. Who is sovereign and in charge of the clay in a pottery class or in, in, with a potter? It's the one who makes the pottery. And he's saying, look, we're talking about God. He can do whatever he wants to do because he's God. And it's so helpful for us to be reminded of that. It's so interesting when you read the history of God's people. Let's put it that way. And you read through your Bible and you read through the Old Testament and you read through the New Testament, there's a pattern. And the pattern is whenever the people of God have an opportunity, it seems, they rush toward idolatry. And they put something or someone else, even if it's themselves, like in Romans 1, in the position of God. And I think we're on our way to doing that when we start getting in a huff about, what right does he have to do that? Well, hello, brainiac. He's God, you know? And I can't tire from saying it over and over again. I think it's my, my pastoral duty. It would be really important and good and helpful for you spiritually if you were good with God being God. I mean, I know it's, you know, new revelation maybe. God, we're talking about God. Creator, sovereign, over, in charge. That's what the issue is in Romans chapter 9. It's so helpful for us to to come to grips with that, even in that stark and sobering way. Question number two. Given that Romans 9 is so controversial, and it's not a gospel issue, why make so much of it? Well, that question is absolutely dead on when it acknowledges that Romans 9 is controversial. I dare you to read it in most churches. Well, if it's so controversial and it's not a gospel issue, then why are we talking about it so much? Couldn't the pastor have just called in sick that Sunday and the next week we would do like Romans 10? You know, it's kind of, it rubs you the wrong way. 
And after all, the gospel is of first importance, uh, 1 Corinthians 15.3. I would like to answer the question by saying, actually, it is a gospel issue. We can't say, oh, Romans 9 is just dealing with issues about predestination and sovereignty of God and all of those controversial things. Why can't we talk about the gospel? Because that's more important anyway. What's so interesting is actually it's related to the gospel. And we see it in Romans 9. Look with me, if you would, at verse 11. It needs to be emphasized. Verse 11 has this, this wonderful interruption. It's actually hard. It messes, it messes up preaching outlines. Verse 11 starts with, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. And then it actually should go to verse 12. She was told the older will serve the younger, but it's like the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, can't help himself. He just has to make sure that we're, we're, we're getting this clear in our minds that, that, that this is a gospel issue. And he gives what, in my translation, and the version I'm preaching from, the, the translators actually put a dash in there, and a lot of yours might be the same. Verse 11, halfway through, the dash interrupts and he bursts forth and says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. And that is gospel verbiage. You're not saved by works, something that you do. That's grace verbiage. It's not by works. But it's because of His call. And His call, that's gospel. That's, that's, that's grace verbiage as well. Remember, we've been learning about the call of God in Romans 8.28. Called according to His purpose. It's, it's salvation gospel terminology. And then Romans 8.29, those whom He called. It's talking about those who God saves. The work of God. So here in the context of this controversial passage about the sovereignty of God, things like predestination and election, he says right there in verse 11, it's not because of works, but because of His call. That is to say, it's because of His work. And therefore, God's election, God's salvation, if you will think of it in these terms, helps to make sure we see that salvation is not of works. And if you're not tracking with me, let me try to unpack that a little bit. Romans 9 is talking about the absolute sovereignty of God, that He is the initiator. Before either of the twins did anything, God made a choice. That is crucial in making sure we understand salvation is not by works. And you say, how so? They hadn't done anything yet. You see, if they had done anything and God saw, oh, you know, I, I saw and looked ahead of time and I saw that Jacob was initiating toward me and so I predestined him. Well, first of all, that's not what the Bible teaches. And second of all, that is not grace. That's rewarding. That's based upon works. This is definitely a gospel issue. It's not foreseen faith. You would never get foreseen faith in Romans chapter 9. And I know so many times we try to read our Bibles that way. God didn't see, foresee anything with Jacob and Esau. They're, they're, they haven't even done anything yet. And he places his hand upon one of them. 
Why? What does that prove? What's the point? Well, one major point is in verse 11, so that we would see it's not because of works, but because of His call. Look with me at another passage, Romans 11, still talking about the same kinds of issues. In Romans 11, 5, just so you don't take my word for it and think we're looking at one verse sort of out of context. This is a gospel issue. If you have a, if, put, let me put it this way, if you, if you have a, 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 a twisted perspective on issues of sovereignty and predestination, it's going to lead to a twisted perspective eventually on the gospel. Somehow it's something that you've done or you're foreseen to have done. Look at Romans 11.5. It says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. That word chosen there is translated in Romans 9.11 as election. It's eklage, the word for elect. So elect by grace, chosen by grace, elected by grace. Verse 6 says, But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So that's a good cross-reference. Chosen by grace. Elected by grace. Grace is something you don't do. It has nothing to do with you. It's not a reward that God sees you raising your hand and He looks down the corridor of time seeing if you're going to choose Him or not. And based upon that, He elects you. That's exactly what Romans 9 and 11 don't teach. And it's like he's jumping up and down saying, no, you're elected by grace. It's free. Don't go there. This is a gospel issue. And if you stop and think about it, Arminianism, which is the theological category for those who would sincerely believe that we choose God first and then God chooses us. And that's how you explain predestination. Arminianism, taken to its logical outflow, is work salvation. It's not grace. Grace is unmerited, free, nothing you do to earn it. But if God chooses me because I choose Him first or He foresees me choosing Him, however that works. I don't know, the Bible doesn't teach that, but let's just theorize the Arminian way. Where does the ultimate or the beginning of my salvation lie? It's with me. It's with me. I'm not saying that all Arminians are unconverted and on their way to hell. I think we can be confused about different things and it seems like we're all Arminians when we get saved. <laughs> but it's time to eventually grow up and, and get the gospel right and think it through. Remember, the Romans were baby Christians and he's dumping this kind of stuff on them. Chosen by grace. God, before anything is done with Jacob and Esau, Puts his love on Jacob. He didn't foresee him doing anything. This is a gospel issue. This doesn't mean when I evangelize, I start with Romans 9. You know, let me tell you. <laughs> Paul doesn't do that either. 
But I guarantee you, he understands the theology of salvation when he's evangelizing. And maybe we'll talk about evangelism next time. And he gets to Romans chapter 10, and evangelism is important, and he calls people to believe. And he prays for their salvation. And by the way, when you pray for people's salvation, you're proving that you actually think in these terms, in the right terms. You're asking God to save people. You believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. And you, I don't know anyone who prays, Lord, please work in their life in such a way so that they can figure it all out and choose you first and then you'll choose them back. No, we don't do that. We say, Lord, please save them. Intervene in their life. It's a gospel issue. It really ends up being a gospel issue. Some of you carry an ESV study Bible. There's a great note in there that says, Election and grace are inseparable, for both show that salvation is God's work alone and that it has nothing to do with works. That's a great quotation. It's very helpful. Does this make sense? I hope it does. If it doesn't, please reread the verses we looked at in Romans 9 and Romans 11. It is by grace, so it's no longer by works, chosen by grace. Let's move on to a third question, as much as I don't want to. Question number three. What do you recommend to someone who believes the Bible is true? but is really struggling with Romans 9 and taking it at face value. And I imagine that is the case for some of you. Been there. Done that. Okay? You are not alone. (laughs) I believe the Bible's true, Pastor. All of it. But Romans 9 is is a curveball. I really liked Romans. Oh, I loved Romans 8. And then what happened in Romans 9? It just doesn't, doesn't quite work for me. Some of you are probably in that position, and that's why I like doing the Q&A part. And I hope I'm going to be pastoral. This morning I prayed, Lord, help me to be pastoral and care and, and be compassionate. and Even in preaching. I have two things to recommend that I think will be helpful. One has to do with God. And the other has to do with sin. God and sin. Your sin, not God's. Here's here's what you need to do. Here's what we all need to do. Think, even if it's for the first time and this might seem dumb, about God being God. I know we were just talking about that. Maybe call God something else, one of his other titles, like sovereign, like creator, like almighty, Yahweh, I I don't care, (laughs) instead of God. Maybe we use it too often. And then... Read Romans 9 sort of like I did earlier with an emphasis on God being free to do what He wants to do. And then read the Bible that way and look at certain key biblical passages that go out of 
their way to show us that He is different than we are, that He's the Creator, that He's above. He is free and has His rights to do whatever He wants to do with His creation. If we let God be God, Romans 9 is not a problem. I have a favorite, favorite psalm when it comes to this. It's Psalm 135. If you have a a Bible and you turn to Psalm 135, I think this might be... Uh, good medicine, if you will, for, for, for having difficulty with Romans 9. Just trying to remember who God is. In so many ways, the offense of Romans 9 is the freeness of God. Is the fact that God isn't under our thumb, the fact that God doesn't owe us anything other than He owes us condemnation. And the I want, here, here, here's my, my desire. I want to be like the psalmist here. I want you to be like the psalmist here, seeing God in His great sovereignty over all things, and He's not having a beef with it. He's embracing it, and in and, and, and effect saying, let God be God, and it's great to have God be God. Read with me, if you would, in Psalm 135, verse 1, where it says, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. See, we're now we're getting into sovereign freedom to choose Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and our Lord is above all gods. Verse 6 is really what I want you to focus on then. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He's praising God for the very things God has talked about doing and being in Romans 9. He's sovereign in His choosing. He's all-powerful. He is God when there is no other true God. And, And He's praising Him for it. He's praising God for the fact that God does what He pleases. Verse 8 says, He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. See, we've got sovereign decision-making, doing whatever it is He wants to do because He's God, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. And then He names these kings. And then it says in verse 13, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. Think about that in the context as we're moving through this. You're renowned. God, you are famous for being the God who does whatever you want to do. Including those things I just talked about, like putting down those kings. Doing controversial things. God is known for these things. He's known for acting like God and having total freedom. Verse 15, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them will become like them. So do all who trust in them. And then he's praising God for this. The God who does whatever he pleases. 
See, you don't want one of those idols that you make with your own hands that doesn't talk and doesn't hear and is dumb and who isn't sovereign and who would never be controversial and who would never slaughter anyone and who would never be famous and who would never elicit your praise. We're talking about the one true God who's in control of it all and is kind and gracious to His people. Yes, He is a choosing God in Psalm 135 and the psalmist is good with it. Be good with it. Be good with it. Even if your friends and neighbors aren't good with it, be good with it. I love Romans 3, 4 for so many different reasons, but Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If I can't find a single commentary that says, you know what? Romans 9 means what it says. Thankfully, I can. But if I can't find a single one, Romans 3, let God be God and every man be found a liar. I know what it says. I think it means what it says. And that really helps me to come to grips with Romans 9 and its toughness. So if you're having a hard time with it, rethink your thinking about God. And I think it will be one of the best things you can do. There's another thing you can do. Romans 9 is a tough pill to swallow. And you're kind of like the, the, the objector in Romans 9. And you're thinking, that's not fair. God chooses, doesn't choose everybody. It's not fair. And you need to think more about sin. Okay? You need to think more about sin. Fair? Fair is that we are sinners. That means we're rebels. That means we're insurrectionists. We've sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. Fair is... He goes Rambo on you. Right? That's fair. Fair is, wages of sin is death. You're smoked and done and it's over with. And the angels in heaven would praise Him for being a just and holy and righteous God. We say, well, I don't think that's the case because I deserve better than that. You know, I'm entitled. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you got to read Romans. You know, we weren't supposed to read Romans 9 in and of itself. If you just read Romans 9, you're probably going to have a problem. You read Romans 1, 2, and 3 and find yourself backed in the sin corner, right? He deals with people who are just normal Joes. He deals with people who are religious. He deals with people who are, quote-unquote, moralists. And in Romans chapter 3, he says, no one does good. No, not one. We're all spiritual insurrectionists. We're all spiritual rebels. We're, we're all worthy of death. Look with me, if you would, just by way of reminder. If you don't get this, I guarantee you Romans 9 is going to be not a friend. You're not going to like Romans 9. Romans 9 is going to be a problem. And it's because you don't see the sinfulness of sin. Look at Romans 3, verse 10. This is after he's, he's argued every which way. I mean, he's, he's argued the Princess Diana's into the sin corner. He's argued the Mother Teresa's into the sin corner. And he's saying they're all spiritually bankrupt. They've got nothing before God. Because they're sinners and the wages of sin is not feeding the poor. As good as that is. The wages of sin is death. Well, certainly some of these people can get around it. I mean, after all, we're Jews. Or after all, you know, we have a Christian heritage. Romans 3.10, listen to the nails going to the coffin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. It's amazing. And he's not saying no one is religious. No one attends religious services. No one does relative good. No, because he just got to talking about those kinds of people. He's saying they still have a sin problem. And the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. And then you think about that, that has to do with our actions. Then Romans chapter 5, which we're not going to take the time to look at really. We're all in Adam. So we're not just sinners by action, we're sinners by nature. Ephesians chapter 2, 1, 2, and 3. Ephesians 2, 3. By nature, children of wrath. This is bad. Bad, 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 bad. So what do I have before God? Well, if you want fair, we are all in the category of Esau. We all deserve divine holy, perfect, righteous hatred. That's fair. That's the conclusion to come to after Romans 1, 2, and 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, oh, and 7, and 8. If you haven't really embraced a sin nature, belief in a sin nature, and the fact that no one does good, no, not one, you will hate Romans 9. But you know what? You won't understand the gospel either. Remember Romans 5, 8? While we were yet sinners, oh, those cute little sinners, you know. No. A sinner is a rebel. Trying to take God off the throne. That would be Romans 1 kind of verbiage. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's no deserving. Well, with that in mind, I read Romans 9 and I see that God is choosing and God is choosing to bestow His grace upon some but not all. And I'm saying, wow! Isn't this amazing? Isn't it awesome that God would choose anyone? That He would love Jacob is absolutely mind-blowing. You know how the angels in 1 Peter, uh, they, 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 they long to meditate and look upon things that have to do with salvation? It's probably because they, it blows their mind that God would save anybody. That God would do that. They don't deserve to be saved, God. This is amazing that you, that you would become a man and become one of them and live righteously for them. And then go to the cross, God, as the God-man and, and, and absorb all the wrath that they deserve and then rise again from the dead on their behalf. Things in which angels, they long to look at and meditate on because it blows their minds. Well, think about it. If God saved one person, it would blow the angels' minds. If there was only one who was like Jacob, 
And as I love to see and say, in the book of Revelation, we learn that there are more people who get saved than you could ever even count. It's no wonder the angels long to look at it. They would have longed to look at it if it meant one. And now we're talking about multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes. If you're having a hard time with Romans 9, it's because you think you're a good person. Somehow or another, or you think there are good people. There are none, not even one. Read Romans 3. Read Jeremiah 17, 9. Read Isaiah 64 and see what good works are compared to. If you cross that hurdle by the grace of God, and it's everywhere, you see it all throughout the Bible, then passages that deal with salvation start to not only make sense, but you see their goodness. God chooses people for salvation. Hallelujah, right? Because apart from God initiating, it would never happen, ever. Wow, I'm so thankful for this great truth. It's amazing. I love it. So if you're struggling with Romans 9, you probably are overestimating yourself or others. And you're probably not remembering that God is godlike. For me, I know, and I'm only speaking for myself, that was really what, what sealed the deal, so to speak. I would have told you I was a sinner. I, I would have told you I needed Christ. And, and as you grow and learn more and more, you read passages like this and Romans 8 and others, Ephesians 1 and not liking it too much. Surely it doesn't mean what it says. And the more you learn about what the Bible teaches about sin and the sinfulness of sin, you say, you know what, it had to be God. And now all of a sudden when we say things like, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. When it says save, it means save. Rescue. Because they are not capable or able. It's his work. It changes everything. So I hope that helps. And I'm lighthearted sometimes and sarcastic sometimes and I hope you can get past all of that in all sincerity you got to deal with the God issue you got to deal with the sin issue and then salvation is awesome and it makes sense we're not entitled number four we're doing five number four what does Jesus think about Romans 9 <laughs> what does Jesus think about Romans 9 well that's a funny question but I like to have it be raised because sometimes we act as if Jesus doesn't think this way. If you turn with me in your Bible to John 10 and John 6, we learn pretty fast that Jesus is pretty good with this. Um, <laughs> not only because of inspiration, and Paul is actually saying what Jesus says in Romans chapter 9, um, but also because these are things Jesus talked about. As a matter of fact, when Jesus talked about these things during his earthly ministry, they were controversial. And some of these things were the very things that caused his quote-unquote disciples to leave and to not want to be with him anymore. 
And so let's see, Romans chapter 10, verse 24. The Jews gather around Him. John 10, John 10, 24. So the Jews gathered around Him and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. As if He hadn't already. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The work that I do in my Father's name, bear witness about me. Verse 26 is the kicker. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Now you probably just misread that or misthought it. By the time it went from the page into your mind, it got reversed. You're probably thinking, oh, you know what? They didn't believe and so they weren't part of his sheep. It doesn't say that. You do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Interesting. There's something that happens before belief that will bring about belief. Belonging to the flock. And then he goes on to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life. Which obviously happens by faith. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But verse 26 is an important verse when we're thinking all, all these issues through. They don't believe because they're not part of his flock. God doing something first, even before belief. Then turn to John chapter 6, and you see it all over the place. In John 6, we'll look at 37, John 6, 44, John 6, 65. There's great cohesiveness. There's great complementing in the Bible. Paul isn't teaching something Jesus didn't teach. John chapter 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Notice, they come to Him because the Father gives them, right? And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So whoever comes, he'll accept. But how do they come to him? Well, they come because the Father gives them. Then verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's pretty bold language. And I will raise him up on the last day. So we've got the sureness, but how will they come? No one will come unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 65, And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted, unless it is graced him by the Father. And then we read on, and it's because of this kind of stuff. They leave. They conclude they don't like this sovereignty of God business. They're going to find a different church, if you will. And they move on. See, Jesus understands depravity. He understands sin. He understands that apart from God doing something first, no one will ever come to Him. And this is what we're learning in Romans chapter 9, which I hope is going to cause us to want to be like the psalmist in Psalm 135, praising God because He's sovereign even in salvation. For us, if not especially in salvation. And so we end up seeing this all over the place. Someone asked me this morning after the first service, does the Old Testament teach this too? And I said, the Old Testament teaches it too. And you know that because in Romans 9, he's quoting the Old Testament. 
quoting Scripture. We are sinful. We need God to do something. And apart from Him doing something first, there's no salvation. This is why when we go to heaven, we praise Him. He doesn't compliment us. God doesn't reward us for our faith. We praise Him for His salvation, which even includes the faith that He grants. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Well, let's move on to the final question for this morning. As much as I don't want to move on, as much as I just want to cover everything. Good thing is we have a meal today after the service, and you're all invited, and we'll just talk about this the whole time. And uh, I'll let you ask live questions. Um, Number five is a hard one, so we'll end on a hard one. Go figure. Um, (laughs) Does Romans 9 teach double predestination? And I get that question a lot, and so I'll ask it here. I didn't want to take the time when we were in Romans 9. It would be distracting, so I'll just be distracting during the Q&A. Does Romans 9 teach double predestination? Well, before I answer that question that so many people ask, let me uh, role play a little bit and say, here's how I typically answer People say to me, Pastor, do you believe in double predestination? And I say, what do you mean? That's what you need to ask because I then say, if you mean, please try to follow my train of thought. I know it's late and it's time to eat, but hang in there. If you mean by double predestination that God takes morally neutral people if not good people, morally neutral people, and he says, I'm going to take some of these and I'm going to predestine them to hell, make them bad, so on and so forth, and I'm going to take others and I'm going to predestine them to heaven, make them good, then I don't believe in double predestination. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches and I don't believe that. If you mean that God out of a pool, if you will, of all those who are in Adam, all those who are related to Adam spiritually, all those who fell with Adam, a la Romans 5, 12, all those who are sinners by nature, Ephesians 2, 3, if God takes some of them and further hardens them, If God takes in His mind as He was choosing before the foundation of the world, having a fall in mind as well, because you're not going to choose people for salvation unless you have a fall, He's going to take some of those and therefore a condemnation, getting what they deserve. And He's going to take others and predestine them for heaven. If you mean that by it, then yes, I believe in double predestination. Or as others would say, if God passes over those who are in Adam and thus... If he does nothing, they are destined for hell. But he chooses some for salvation. If you mean something like that, I believe in double predestination. But it depends on what you mean by that. But we certainly see in our passage, which is the question, I just told you how I answer the question. God doesn't need to make people bad. But we do have in this passage a definite emphasis on God working sovereignly even when it comes to people's condemnation. Look with me, if you would, at verse 17, where we see an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. For the Scripture 
says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. So we're talking about God. He's in charge. He's sovereign. Verse 18 then says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. And that's a classic text to go to to say, I do believe the Bible teaches some form of double predestination. Has mercy and hardens and it's up to him. And so I would say I do think it teaches it, but it depends on what you mean. I think the best thing I've ever read on this issue, if you want to read about it, uh, is in R.C. Sproul's little book called Chosen by God. Um, The best chapter title I've ever heard in my entire life. Double, double, toil and trouble. So, if you don't have Chosen by God by Sproul, it's really easy to read. It's a small little book. I commend it to you. Um, Double, double, toil and trouble. And uh, he's going to deal with this passage and this verse. And he'll articulate it essentially the same way I have, but better. Um, (laughs) Now, some, we're almost done with this, but, but some are going to say, well, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so God is responding to Pharaoh hardening his heart. And I want to answer that in a couple of ways. If you look at the verse, it doesn't emphasize that. If you look at verse 18, it says, God is hardening whomever He wills. There's nothing in the passage that gives you the feeling that you should think, well, God hardens whomever first hardens themselves. He hardens whomever He wills. He's not waiting for someone else to do something. He hardens whomever He wills. And not only that, secondly, when he moves on to verse 19, he doesn't use that as a defense mechanism. He knows everybody's going to be riled up by it, how God has mercy on whomever he wills and God hardens whomever he wills. He knows people are on the defensive and he doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, you know, don't have a problem. He's only responding to Pharaoh's self-hardening. No, he doesn't do that. He just tightens the screws. Sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God. And by the way, if you look at the passages in the Old Testament about Pharaoh hardening his heart, and you look at all of them, you see before it ever happens, God is communicating his plan to do so. Maybe more than you wanted to know, but the emphasis is on whomever he wills. Double, double, toil, and trouble is the emphasis. This feels more like a theology class to me um, today. Let's wrap it all together this way. Our aim is not to know more. Our aim is not to become more theologically astute. Our aim is not to try to be able to answer all the questions. But each one of those is a means to an end. Our aim is to know God. Our aim is to understand how God saves people. Our aim is to better understand the perfect work of Christ and how it is all of grace and it is not a reward worthy of our praise. That is our ultimate aim. And so we do do theology and we do deal with the questions and we are looking for answers and we are cross-referencing and we're finding out what Jesus said about this because we are seeking a greater aim and that's understanding so that we might join the psalmist in Psalm 135 and dealing with all the issues of the sovereignty of God. We're not saying, 
we're saying, yes, God saves and He is sovereign and He is amazing and we don't deserve it and so let's bless His name. That's what we're seeking to do. And so we're taking the time to deal with some of the hard questions, but it's serving an ultimate purpose, I trust. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for the opportunity to deal with these kinds of questions and thank you for what you're doing in our midst, even as a church. We want to understand the gospel better. Lord, to the degree that we think that